I was, uh, I didn't know they were gonna sing as special, but I was noticing while we were singing the congregational, uh, these two young men over here and these three young ladies here were singing all the words to the songs we were singing, just like they're a part of it. And that's how it ought to be, amen? Yeah, it's a blessing to my heart to watch them sing. And it's always a blessing. I go around churches around the country, but I love it when the young people, the children are singing like, hey, we're all supposed to sing and let's do it. So that's a blessing to me. Well, I'm glad you're here tonight. Thank you for being here. Thank you for making it. Thank you for making it a priority that you would come. Of course, friends and guests that would be here, thank you very much for being here with us. I'm just thankful you're here. I'm looking forward to what we're gonna do tonight. I'll tell you what, uh, if, you, if you have a ribbon, Bob, of one of these things, uh, Romans chapter eight, that's where it was last night. If it's still there, you can leave it there. And then go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. And I will do this in a little while when we turn to Romans eight, you'll know it's almost over, okay? So we'll do that in a little while, but uh, we'll go to Hebrews uh, chapter 12. All right, now I'm going to do, um, I don't know, a preface, I suppose you could call it, of this message or anyway. Um, I was debating whether or not I would preach this particular sermon or another one. And uh, anyway, this is the one I'm going to do. So here's what I want you to know. God knew you would be here tonight. I didn't know you would be here. I didn't know who's coming. I don't know your needs. I don't know what's going on in any particular family's life or your heart. I do know that no matter what's going on in your life, we all, sometime or another, will have difficulty. I'll give everybody a chance to say amen. Sometime or another, we will all have difficulty. If you live long enough, there's going to be heartbreak or difficulty. And so the Lord knows that you're here and he knew that this is what I was going to be speaking, what we're going to get to. And so uh, I'm grateful for that. I'm glad he's involved in it and that he wants to do a work in us and to us. So I'm looking forward to what we're going to get across tonight. So Hebrews chapter well, um, I do uh, really look forward to tomorrow night, by God's grace, if Christ doesn't come back or we have help, that we'll be uh, here tomorrow. I'm looking forward to what we're going to do tomorrow night. Uh, it is, uh, it, has, it has a great, great opportunity to strengthen, <laughs> strengthen you and your walk with the Lord Jesus. So that's, uh, looking forward to that. But tonight we got some work to do, so if you're able, would you stand with me, please? We stand to give reverence and honor to the eternal, infallible, inerrant, the perfect, preserved word of the living God. Amen? What a blessing. Amen. All right. Hebrews 12 and verse number 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, 
And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's as far as we're going to go tonight and so on. Let me have prayer with you, and let's see why God's going to talk to our hearts about it, all right? Our great God, I come to you again. Thank you so much that you love us and that you proved that you loved us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the occasion that we're here tonight. On a Monday night, we're assembled and we have come and we're asking you, wilt thou not revive us again? Will you revive us some more? Will you stir us up? Will you teach us? Will you uh, instruct us? Will you uh, speak to our hearts? And God, I pray every one of us, everyone from the youngest to the oldest, that tonight we will surrender to you whatever you want to do in us and to us and through us. So I do love you, Jesus, and thank you for loving me, and I sure do look forward to when I get to see you. And Jesus, thank you for what we've already enjoyed, and thank you for what you're about to do. And it's in your holy and precious name I pray, Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Right. <clears throat> Well, um, yesterday it all started in chapter 12, verse 1, that this is a metaphor about Christianity, amen? And the metaphor is we're surrounded, it's like we're in a coliseum, a stadium, and we're surrounded, and there's an athletic event going on. The athletic event actually is Christianity. <laughs> but the athletic event that depicts Christianity, that shows a picture of Christianity, is a race. Somebody say amen. amen. All right. So we learned that a race, uh, well, we learned it's an agony. Guaranteed discomfort. Amen. We also learned that he tells us how to run the agony with patience. Remember that? No matter what's coming in our way, a calamity, toil, pain, provocation, Whatever comes our way, we're supposed to go through those with a calm, unruffled temper. Without murmuring, without complaint. Wow, that's pretty serious stuff right there. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to um, begin another angle of what's going on here. So let's uh, go ahead and um, look at it again. Seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, I'll just go ahead and tell you right now, on Wednesday night, we're going to do the cloud of witnesses. It's wonderful. You don't want to miss that Wednesday night. Then it says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Tonight, that's what we're going to work on. We're going to work on this little phrase here, and we'll work on it tomorrow night, too. And then it says, let us run. We did that. Who us is. With patience, we did that. The race, the agony that is set before us. So tonight, I want to look on what we call, um, let us lay aside every weight. Um, when he says this, 
one of the pictures is that in this race, there will be hindrances that will try to keep us from making progress. And he says, they are weights. Let us lay aside every weight. So there will be these things that will, I don't know, bog you down, that will drag you down, that will keep you from making the progress that we should be making. And so how the scripture says it, he says, let us lay aside every weight. So I'll just go ahead and ask you if you understand what I'm talking about, what we're reading. How many weights are we supposed to lay aside? There you go. Every weight. Now let's just keep going. And the sin. So I'll just go ahead and tell you that as a Bible student and as a, as a person that sits through teaching and preaching and so on, whenever I read, let us lay aside every weight and the sin, I always connected them like this, that they are the same saying, every weight and the sin. But actually the conjunction and actually makes it almost two different things. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin. And so, if you want to look at it like that, uh, you could say it like this, that if it is a weight, here's another way, if it is a hindrance, it doesn't necessarily mean it's sinful. There are things that come in our life that could hinder us from making progress, they are bogging us down. It doesn't mean that they are wicked, that they are sinful, but if we're not careful, they could keep us from making the progress that we're supposed to, and therefore this good thing could become something that's a detriment. Everybody with me? Yeah. I've got several things I could try to describe to you, try to explain that might be a weight, it's not wicked, it's not sinful at all. For instance, I could do this one. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a job. In fact, I'm pretty sure we're kind of supposed to get a job. Amen. You need a job so you can make money. You need money so you could take care of your family. Then you could keep going on and on and on. There's nothing wrong with having a job. God, in fact, let's see if we all agree with this or see if you're aware of this. The Bible says, if a man doesn't work, he ought not. How come all churches know what that means? No matter where I go. If a man doesn't work, he ought not eat. All of us know that's in the Holy Bible. And it's even true. But for some reason, in Washington, D.C., they don't think that's really true. Are you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. But the Holy Bible says if a person doesn't work, they ought not eat. So you're supposed to have a job. There's nothing wrong with working. Now, there are some J-O-Bs, I suppose, that we could begin to identify, at least that the people call it their job, that would be wicked. That would be dishonoring to God. It would be uh, something that would be vile according to the holiness and the righteousness of God. Amen? But 
when we talk about working and a job that we have to do, there's nothing wrong with working. You ought to work. But there is something wrong. If a person's not careful, the J-O-B could become a huge stumbling block or a huge blockage from them making progress in their race and they're becoming like uh, Jesus. Isn't that what the race is about? We're supposed to be obedient to Christ and becoming more like him. When will the race be over? When we see him, when we're like him. Amen? So sometimes the J-O-B can get in the way of our Christianity, of our race, and it becomes a hindrance to us. The Holy Bible says, let us lay aside every weight. Mercy. Uh, Brother Dave, you think I'm supposed to like quit my job? Because my job? Now, wait a minute. I don't know if you should quit or not. But I'll tell you this. Your job is not supposed to come before the Lord God. The job never gets to interrupt who the Lord is and his position in your life. The job doesn't get first place. The Lord Jesus gets first place. Are you saying, Brother Dave, that some people let their job get in the way and bump Jesus off the throne and now the job is on the throne? Uh, yeah, we are all candidates to do that. But we're not supposed to. And then that doesn't mean I'm supposed to quit my job, but it does mean this, that I say, hey, job, you don't get first place in my life. I'm putting you to the side. The Lord Jesus gets first place in my life. Amen? I don't have to quit my job, but I do let my job know it's not number one in my life. It's not number two in my life. My family should be number two in my life. I know some crybabies, I mean, some people say, no, no, family should be number one, family should be number one. Actually, no, the Lord God's number one. I didn't make it up, Jesus said it. It's in red letters. Jesus said, if a man hate not his father and his mother, his wife and his children, and his brethren and his sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. All Jesus is saying, you put me first, and then if you'll put me first and take care of your family like you're supposed to, it'll be the right order. Amen? So since we're talking about it, some people do put their family in front of God. What do you do? Get rid of your family? Just say, okay, everybody out. I'm never talking to you again. Get away from me because I'm going to serve God. No, but you can tell your family, hey, family, you're not first. God always comes first. Can somebody say amen? Let's talk just a second. Do some, do some places of work, do they ever have emergencies? I mean, is there emergencies that happen? So since we're talking about it, aren't you glad that there's something called an emergency room? And somebody's there when we need to go there? Yeah. We're, emergencies happen. If you work at a factory or you work at some company and they have an emergency and they go, hey, we've got this emergency. This is, we didn't plan for this. This is just something that happened and we need to take care of this. I understand that emergencies happen. 
But if you work at a place where the emergency goes on for 12 months, your company has bad leadership. You just tell your company, say, hey, 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 I thought this was an emergency. It's been going on for 12 months. I'm not going to miss church for 12 months. Did you just hear me? So you say, are you telling me you're giving an ultimatum to your boss? Yeah, I'm telling my boss, you're not number one. The Lord Jesus is number one, and I'm going to honor him, and I'm going to be in church services. I know when emergencies happen, but this is not emergency. This is bad management. You go, Brother Dave, they'll just let me go and fire me. Well, then God will give you another job. Well, hard jobs are hard to come by. See, I believe you ought to be the kind of worker that if you only work five days a week that the boss says, well, I'll tell you what, if you'll only work five days a week, I'd rather have you here than them here seven days a week. Are you hearing me? I'm just saying you lay aside every weight. doesn't matter if it's your job, if your family, it doesn't matter that. It doesn't matter if it's your recreation. Whatever your games are that you play, whatever recreation you do, whatever hobbies you have, it doesn't matter. They do not ever take the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Lay aside every weight. Amen. Mercy's sakes. There's nothing wrong, and they're not wicked and sinful. They just, if you're not careful, our humanity, our flesh, will let these things take priority, and they are not a priority. Can somebody say amen? Okay, we could do lots more, but I'm not going to. I want to move on. Um, I want to approach this from another angle. And so, you just have to bear with me on this. Sometimes, uh, well, let me back up and tell you this. One, I don't tell people the title of my sermons because some people have really cool titles. And they say, well, tonight I'm preaching, and they tell you the title of the sermon. I don't do that. My title is The Race. At our home church, it's really a cool thing if you have a subtitle also. So my subtitle is The Race. I'll do that and so on. But I do title the sermons so I can file them and so on. And I just call it Training Rules. There's some training thing about it. So to train for the race... Well, you need to lay aside every weight. Well, since I added the word training, for me, that's not the only reason, but another thing that happened is that sometimes in the race, you need to train so you can be ready to do the race effectively. So, I don't know if you were listening the other night. I think it was a Sunday night that I talked about. I was in, uh, I ran a marathon. To do the marathon, I trained. I don't have the ability to just go, okay, I'm going to go run a marathon tomorrow. No, it's going to take me 14 weeks or more to train. Is everybody with me? And you need to train for it. And so when I was Training for the marathon, one of the things I decided I would do, (laughs) I decided that I'm going to get some weights and put on my ankle, some ankle weights. 
because when I was in high school, I saw the track team walking around with weights on at school. And I thought, well, they're just building the strength in their legs and so on. That's a good idea. I told my wife, I'm going to get some weights. So I went to the little sporting goods store place, and I looked for some, and they're blue. They're about this tall, and they have a Velcro thing that wraps around them, and they put it on your ankle. They weigh two and a half pounds. Two and a half pounds here, that's five pounds, and that's what they weigh. So I told Nancy, it was on Monday morning, I said, today I'm going to run two miles with these weights on. It's going to be awesome. I said, when I come back and take the weights off, my legs will be light as a feather. I said, I will flit around like Peter Pan. It's going to be awesome. I had no idea, I had no idea that when I put it on and I took off running, every time you take a step, the ankle weight went up my ankle a little bit and went back down. Up, down, up, down, up, down. I only ran about a block. And I said, I ain't doing this. You know if I ran two miles with that two and a half pounds doing that? My ankles would be bloody. Is everybody with me? I said, I am not about to do that. I unvelcroed them and laid them on the side of the sidewalk, and I go, when I come back, if they're still there, I'll pick them up. <laughs> if they're not, someone else can have them. They were there. I picked them up, and right now they're in my closet. If you looked in my closet, stuck your head in like this, and looked, if you could see the corner there, it's probably can't see it. Some other stuff is there, but they're right there in the corner. I never have put them on since. But they were training weights to help me. Everybody with me? So I was in California when I was wearing those training weights, and I thought, well, I know. I know what I want to do. I want to run on the beach. Do you know why I wanted to run on the beach? Really and truly, I'm telling you the number one reason. Because everybody that runs on the beach looks good. You go, whoa, they are good looking. Look at them running on the beach. I had never run on the beach in my life. I'd only been at the ocean two times, and I never thought about how I got there. We were just standing there at the water. The ocean was, I'd never been in the ocean. I've not done that. So anyway, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to row, I'm going to drive down to the beach, and I'm going to run on the beach today. So I drove down there, and I had no idea. I don't know anything about this. But anyway, I went to this big parking lot at the beach. The water is way down there. Like, I'm talking more than 300 yards. It's way down there. You're not, oh, there's the water. No, you got to, you know what you have to do? You have to walk through the sand. They don't have a path that walks down there. You have to walk through, the, and the sand is not level and it's squishy and you're walking in it when you get down there to the beach your shoe is full of sand i don't want to run with my shoes full of sand i have to sit down on the beach empty my shoe out get all the sand out that i can put them back on and now it's time to run is everybody with me I don't, I don't know if you've ever done that, but it's not comfortable. 
Well, when I get to the beach, I didn't know this. I've never done it before. But when you are at the beach where the water comes up and then it's just kind of shiny there and black, it's hard. It's just like a sidewalk. That's good to run on. But I never thought about that the Wawa's coming back and I'm going, whoa, whoa. I don't want wet shoes while I'm running. Wet socks. Everybody with me? I'm telling you, it was not comfortable. I didn't like it. I don't know how good I looked, but I don't care. I quit running. I did my two miles and came back and said, I'm not ever running on the beach again. Then I had to walk from the beach back to the car. Everybody with me? I didn't like it. I was telling that story. Why would I do that? Well, I wanted to look good. I was telling that story in Washington State, and this fella came up to me and said, uh, Brother Dave, I'm the track coach at our high school. Well, hallelujah. He said, I take our track team to the beach every year. He times. Oh, wow. I want him to run in, on the beach. I go, man, that sounds terrible. He said, so you put him down there in the water? Where, he, no, no, no. He said, we actually don't run on the beach. We run, I call it running in the sand. I don't want to walk in the sand. I especially don't want to run in the sand. Is everybody with me? That's horrible. It's not level. A grown person, a teenager, could twist a knee, twist an ankle, it sounds like that this coach wants to get rid of his team. It's terrible. And he says, oh, no, no, Brother Dave, it's awesome. He said, it, what it does, everybody that runs in the sand, they have to lift their legs higher. Well, yeah. He said, it builds every muscle from their uh, core down. Builds every muscle. Builds the toes, the ankles. It builds the... Uh, the calves, the shin muscles, it builds the knees, it builds, he said, it, it's awesome. It builds every muscle. He said, and we run two miles in the sand twice a year. I'm thinking that's uncomfortable. Is everybody with me? I would hate that. I wouldn't be on the track team. I said, no, I'm not doing that. But why would he do that? Because he hates them? No. He wants to strengthen them. Is everybody with me? He wants to make them stronger so when it comes time for race day, they're stronger. They have more stamina. They have their, their joints and everything. And like he said, they're stronger. He said they're, they're less likely to be injured. The coach has them run in the sand. So here's what I want to talk about. Does our coach ever have us run in the sand? Does he ever have things in our life? He doesn't hate us. He's not mad at us. He's trying to strengthen us. Because the race is not easy. Amen? 
let's just think about it. I want to show you, I'll just tell you about them. You don't have to turn there and so on. Those who have followed God throughout all of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, have not been immune, they've not been protected from disappointment, from tragedy, sorrow, persecution. From the very first family, Adam and Eve, throughout the entire Old Testament and its recorded history, misfortune came upon those who were committed to following Jehovah. Can somebody say amen? Absolutely. The New Testament is no different. Starts with John the Baptist and our own Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There were trials and disappointments and discomfort. The Lord said in red letters, if the world hate you, know, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. John the Baptist, Herod laid hold on him, abound him, and put him in prison. For Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, and sent and beheaded John in prison. Excuse me, what was John doing? He was in the race, he was trying to serve God and do the right thing, and he gets beheaded. Stephen, full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly to heaven, then cried out with a loud voice, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. What was he doing? He's running the race. Paul the Apostle, well, let me do this one first. About that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Acts 14, there came thither the Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he'd been dead. They threw rocks at him and hit him until he was unconscious, and they thought he was dead. What was he doing? He's running the race, doing the best he can, and calamity and disaster comes to his life. Acts 16, the multitude rose up together against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates rent, all, this is incredible to me, they rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them and had laid many stripes upon them, and then cast them into the prison, and put their feet fast in the stocks. Paul and Silas are in prison, they've been beaten, and now their feet are in these stocks, and all they were doing is trying to do the work of God. Excuse me, anybody who says, well, no, all you got to do is follow Jesus, you won't have any trouble. Well, they've just never read the Holy Bible. Well, when I say that these tragedies are coming to the Apostle Paul, let me just read you this. This is, I got two more things. Paul, Paul said the chief captain, the Bible says the chief captain commanded Paul to be brought into the castle and they examined him. They asked him a bunch of questions. Do you know how they did it? By scourging. Paul says thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered, suffered shipwreck a night and a day in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by heathens, in perils in the city, 
in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hungers and thirst and fastings often, in cold and in nakedness. What is going on? To what, to what end? Why is Paul going through all this? Why does anybody who's trying to stay in the race and do what Jesus wants them to do, why are they going through any of this tragedy, this sorrow? Timothy says it like this. Endure hardness. Hang in there. As a good soldier, don't quit. Don't give up. Why? He says, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. The whole reason that all of these difficulties came upon someone, I'm going to say it like this, because God was trying to strengthen them. So here's the description. God has them running in the sand. Not because he hates them. Because he wants to strengthen them. He's got something he's going to do with them. Is everybody with me? That's part of the training of the race. Running in the sand. I'm getting ready to give you a personal illustration about running in the sand. And the purpose of giving you this illustration is not to compare with you. Because everybody has times in their life that they're running in the sand. Everybody does. Like what one preacher said, he said it like this, storms of life come. He said, if you're not in a storm right now, that means you just came out of one. Or you're getting ready to go in one. It's called life. I'm calling it running in the sand. If you're not running in the sand right now, that means not too long ago you got out, or it won't be long that you'll be doing it again. To what end? He's trying to strengthen us. He wants us to be the best runners we can be to bring glory to his name. Amen? Now, as I talk about running in the sand, let me preface this. Tonight, some of you are running in the sand. I have no idea. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know. But if you are running in the sand, I just want to tell you, I'm sorry. It's uncomfortable. It's disappointing. It's heartbreaking. I'm not looking to compare running in the sand that happened in our life. Your life, that, that's not the intent. The intent is for us just to acknowledge and admit that sometimes we are running in the sand. We have two daughters. Angie's never been married. Angie has Chelsea in her life, the young girl who does the artwork. And we love Chelsea. And we 
are grateful for Angie's testimony and so on. Our other daughter, Becky, has two children. She has a 10-year-old girl and a 9-year-old boy. And a few years ago, I could tell you it's 2016, so that's five years ago, this month in August. Nancy and I were out west somewhere preaching some church, and uh, our daughter called, Becky called, and she is crying on the phone uncontrollably, just can't catch her breath. She's just crying. And she said, I have to tell you something. And she's trying to tell us and she can't. And we're just thinking, oh, good night. Something horrible has happened. We don't know who died. We don't know what happened. But she's trying to tell us and she can't get it out. And finally, she did. And she said, we just found out today that our son Ryder, in the month of August, in the July, Ryder turned four years old. So in May and June, he was three when he turned four in July. And our daughter Becky's crying on the phone uncontrollably. And she said, we just found out today that Ryder has been molested all summer long. You talk about a stab in the heart. I'm a grandpa and I, I had no idea how to respond to that. How do you know? And she's trying to tell us. And, said, and I'm telling you, as she's telling me, my anger is rising inside me. My heartbreak is rising. Now Nancy and I are crying, and our daughter Becky is crying. We're all trying to talk to each other. And I said, well, who knows about it? And what it was, our daughter and her husband worked at our college in the summer, and other people worked on the college grounds that summer, and our grandchildren went to the school with them, and they spent six, eight hours a day at school. So they ate there, they took a nap there, and they used their little scooter and went down the big sidewalks there and they played there and so on. Well, other, just a couple of other children were there and one of them was a 13-year-old boy. Our grandson would uh, follow the, uh, the workers that, you know, oh, uh, maintenance people that worked at the campus, followed them around. They got him a little hard hat, got him a hammer and a screwdriver. He would follow them and go with them. But when he wasn't with them, sometimes that other boy would say, hey, you want to go play? And they found out, like I said. I said, who knows about this? And my anger is rising. I'm saying, what are they doing about it? Is he in jail yet? Have they, of course, have they told the authorities yet? And and my brain is going 100 miles an hour, and I'm thinking, I don't, we can't put up with this. We've got to stop the, you know, and I'm going, like I said. And my daughter said, well, we have a detective that's part of the church, and we've talked to the detective, and the detective said what we need to do is let him do his detecting first, 
because if we just call the police right now and so on the front page of the Oklahoma, the Daily Oklahoma, they would love to have a news story like this. They would love to put it on TV like this. Everybody with me? They love to put whatever they can do to pull down anything that does with Christianity. And uh, the detective said, why don't you let me do the work before we, you know, you're, you're made the complaint, I have it, but let me do the work. So this was the month of August, the third week. Nancy and I are heartbroken. It always happens to somebody else. I've got five brothers and five sisters. I've got a bunch of nephews and nieces. Our family is humongous. And I've never, I don't know that it hasn't happened, but I've never heard about child abuse or molestation in any of our family members. It may have happened, and I don't know. But I haven't heard about it. I pastored a church of 400 people for nine years, never heard about it. And then I have a three-year-old, a four-year-old grandson, and it hits our life. My daughter is heartbroken. Her husband is. It's like, it's like running in the sand. Why? What's going on? What am, how long am I going to be here? How long is this going to take? So we, we talk to our daughters every day. It's a thing our family does. We only have two girls, and so we talk every day on the phone for a few minutes or longer. But Anyway, we're calling every day. How's he doing? How are you doing? And we're all still crying. And how's the little boy doing? Well, he seems to be okay, and you know, and so they had a counselor talk to the grandson and you know what they had to say and so now we're into October and the detective says okay we have a court date for November so during this time the 13 year old his parents are there and so they said he can never be out of the eyesight of his mother or father. One of them, he has to be in the eyesight of one of his parents if he's here on these grounds or if he's at the church building. I didn't know what else to do. I don't, I don't know what you do, you know. I didn't, I have my plans. I think, you know, there's some things that ought to happen, but I'm not the one in charge, and I, they're trying to do the best they can and trying to figure this out. So the court date was November. So they go to court. And one of the lawyers is sick. He can't be there. And the judge bumped it all the way up to January. So now it's January. So I'll go ahead and tell you that the court date happened and the judge said that this teenager will go to counseling, the counsel that he chooses, the judge, not anybody else. And he will continue with that counselor until the counselor says he doesn't have to come back, however long it takes. So that was what happened. So we talk every day. We've had Thanksgiving at home. We've had Christmas time. We don't bring it up. We don't talk about it. We don't say, hey, do you remember anything and all that business? We don't do that. We're trying to live our life. Now I'm in California. It's February. My daughter calls me. She's just crying on the phone uncontrollably. 
I said, what is, what, what's going on now? What happened? She goes, I can't take it anymore, Dad. I see these people every day, and my heart can't take it anymore. I don't know what to do. I said, well, you're going to quit your job, start, go somewhere else. She said, I don't know what to do. I don't know. And in God's grace and kindness and timing, we've not talked about it before until this day on the phone. And I have a series of sermons that I have preached on bitterness and forgiveness. And I begin to talk to her about being bitter. I said, Becky, if you stay bitter, it will destroy you. It will destroy your relationship between you and your husband if you stay bitter. It will destroy the relationship between you and your son if you stay bitter. And of course, it destroys your relationship between you and your God. You cannot stay bitter. You must forgive. That very night, I'm preaching at a church. A lady gets up and she has a harp. She has a microphone sitting there. She begins to play the harp and she sings a song I've never heard in my life. After it was over, nobody knows, nobody in the room, only Nancy and I know what's going on in our life. I get up and I say, thank you for that song. It was wonderful. I said, did you write that song? She said, no. I said, do you have the words to that song where I can have access? She said, yes. And I said, I'll talk to you after service. Well, I find out the name of the song is God Wanted It That Way. A man, a pastor named Stephen Nichols, he spells it with a P-H, and then his Nichols is N-I-C-H-O-L. He pastors in Sacramento, California. You can find it on YouTube. Look at Stephen Nichols. You can find his family there. He has a, kind of a large family, and they have a couple of uh, children that are disabled and need special needs. And anyway, he writes songs. They sing as a family, and they are a blessing and so on. Well, he wrote this song, God Wanted It That Way. And the very day my daughter called, and I talked to her about bitterness and forgiveness. I heard this song at church. I'm getting ready to read you, not all, every word of it, but I'm getting ready to read you a couple of the scores of it. Um, it. says, if God wanted it that way, Daniel would have never known the lion's den. Joseph would have the throne without the prisons. David would have never known Saul's jealousy. And Job would have never lost his family. Stephen would have never been stoned, and the beatings of Paul would have never been known. But God wanted it that way. Every trial, every test was only for the best. It was always in his plan though we may not understand, as the potter molds the clay, God just wanted it that way. Yeah. In these lives we live down here, sunshine will always know the rain to fall. Each day can bring us joy as well as sorrow. Trials will always come from day to day, and heartaches may cross our path along the way, but he holds our lives in his hands. Our, our hopes, our tears, he always understands. 
God wanted it that way. Every trial, every test was only for the best. It was always in his plan, though we may not understand as the potter molds the clay, God just wanted it that way. That's all I'm going to read of the song. I do want to do a little parentheses here. I've had people tell me, Brother Dave, God did not want your grandson to be molested. Well, that's true. It's sin. It's wicked. Is everybody with me? God did not want Daniel thrown in the lion's den. That's wicked. That's wrong. He didn't want Stephen Stone. Is everybody with me? Humanity, wickedness, sin happens. Does God know it's going to happen? Well, he's God. Could, could God stop it? Yeah. Our grandson could have died before he ever met that teenager. That teenager could have died before he ever met our grandson. Everybody with me? But somehow or another, and we don't understand it all, but God is God, and he allows Satan to do things that breaks our heart. Is everybody with me? God's not asleep. He's not away on vacation. He's involved in this. We may not understand, but he has a plan. And he puts us in the sand. And it's horrible. Since I brought it up, let me just say this to you. If you're in the sand, please don't act like you're not in the sand. God knows you're in the sand. And you don't have to say, hey, God, thank you. I love the sand. You can tell him, say, God, I don't like the sand. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. I don't like what it does to my life, my body, my heart. He already knows you don't like it. You can be honest with him. You know, wait, wait, wait. He said, Brother Dave, we're supposed to lay aside every weight. How do we do that? Watch. When the sand comes in my life, I might not can get out of it, but I can do this. God, I'm not going to let the sand, I'm going to lay it aside. I'm not going to let the sand cause me to quit trusting you. I'm not going to let the sand get me out of the race. I don't know how long the sand's going to last. If you're in the sand tonight, I am telling you, I'm sorry. I don't want you to be in the sand. But God knows you're there. And I've already just said it a while ago. If you're not in the sand right now, I guarantee you, if you live long enough, you will be in the sand. It might not be as devastating as molestation. It might be worse. Is everybody hearing me? That night, we got this song, and I sent my daughter an email with the attachment with the song on it. It was already at where we were. It's like 10 o'clock, and so where she was, it's midnight. She's already in bed. She got it the next morning. She says she listened to it more than five times before she went to work. Now, I want to tell you, my daughter... I asked her about what I'm getting ready to do, what I've already done, tell you the story and what I'm getting ready to read to you. I said, is it okay? She said, yes. I said, I'm going to tell other people. She said, yes, I want you to tell them. I want them to know what God did for us. So 
The next day, our daughter writes a letter to this family she sees every day that can't take it anymore. She writes, first of all, I want to tell you I'm sorry. I've allowed Satan to plant seeds of bitterness in my heart. God started working on my heart on Wednesday afternoon. I had called my dad who preached to me his series on forgiveness and bitterness. Halfway through, I thought, why did I call him? However, he was right, and I needed it. I could not understand why God allowed for it to happen. I could not understand why God is making it harder for me by having to see you and be reminded of it every day. He said, but I realized something. I'm human, and I'm not going to understand. I just need to trust God and carry on. The Lord will take care of my feelings and restore healing. His grace and peace is sufficient. And she puts in capital letters, and I'm making a big issue of this, if we allow it to be. His grace is there, but if you don't receive it, it won't help you. Anyway, she continues. Then something amazing happened today. I had a personal revival. God used this song to help me see everything from a different view. She said, we serve the Almighty. He could have chosen not to let this happen, but somehow it's in his plan. Long before you had your son or we had ours, God knew. Nothing is a mystery to him. We may never know why, but we do know it's because he knows why. When I understood that, it changed everything. And my daughter says to this family, you all are walking in harder shoes than we are. I pray I never know what it's like. I have been praying for you all and will continue to do so. Please know that we have forgiven your son. And I know that God somehow will use this for his good. I pray this song will be a blessing to you. If you'll turn to Romance 8, I'm almost done. I'll show you something. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose ladies and gentlemen tonight I ask you the question do you believe that do you believe that everything the tragedies the sorrows the disasters the sand that you are in do you really, really believe? It's okay to say, God, I don't get all this. I don't like it. I don't want to be here. But I know you know about it. And somehow you're going to work all things together. The first time I ever read this out loud and preached it, I was in a church in Ohio. 
There's a young woman there who looked to be, I don't know, 35, 36, not sure, in that area, young, mid-30s. And she came. Sunday, I saw her, I spoke to her. The church was, a, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred people. But I spoke to her, and her countenance was just sad, sorrowful. She came back Sunday night, and the pastor was happy she came back, but surprised. So the pastor told me uh, her 16-year-old daughter committed suicide three months ago. And this young woman can't get over it. Her heart is broken. It's just devastating. And I, I don't know what that's like, folks. I'm telling you, I can't imagine it getting worse than that. I preached this sermon. I had no idea on Monday. I didn't know. I knew that she had suffered that, but I just preached this sermon. On Tuesday, the lady that she works with that got her to come to church came to church first Tuesday night. And I'm there talking to people, and she said, hey, and she tells me her name. She said, this girl, God's changed her life. She came in today. It's incredible. She's inviting other people from work to come tonight. And she walks in, and her countenance has changed totally. And she said, Brother Dave, last night, God let me get out of the sand she began to trust God. Does that mean it doesn't hurt? No, it still hurts. Is everybody with me? Somehow or another, I don't understand it all, but I know this, whenever we're in the sand, we need to lay it aside and say, God, I don't know how long I'm going to be in the sand, but I know this, I'm not going to let the sand keep me from serving you. Amen? Listen, a job, that's nothing like sand. But you ought not let your job keep you from serving God. Family, boy, sometimes that's where all the sand is, isn't it? But you ought not let it keep you from serving God. Sickness, illness, disease, tragedy, sorrow should not keep us from serving God. Can somebody say amen? I told you at the very beginning, God knew you would be here tonight. Some of you might not be in the sand right now, but a month from now you might be. And I'm sorry if you are, but I know you can trust God. If you're not saved, man, you need a Savior. You need help. You need forgiveness so you can have someone to help you when you're in the sand. You know the story you've heard about the footprints in the sand? There's all these two footprints, there's two sets. Until the tragedy and the sorrow comes, there's only one set. And the God, where'd you go? Where'd you go? He said, I didn't go anywhere. I was carrying you. And praise God, sometimes he does carry us while we're in this sand. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our great God, I do come to you again. I wanted to say thank you for loving us. Thank you for putting up with us. Thank you for loving us and being interested in us so much that 
when we're in the sand, you still are involved in our life, and maybe more than any other time. So God, I thank you that we can trust you. I pray every one of us would make commitments that we're not going to let these weights, every weight, we're not going to let them hinder us in the race. I pray we'd make decision and commitment to you that we'd lay them aside. Thank you, Christ. If someone's not saved, please touch them. Help them know how much you love them and you want to forgive their sins. Our heads are bowed. As Joy's going to begin to play, Kenny's going to begin to sing. I'm just going to ask you to respond to however the Holy Spirit touches your heart. Say yes tonight. Let's give him glory.